Hey everyone, it's CJ. Thank you all so much for your patience on this episode. If you're listening in media res, you'll know that the past few weeks have been ones of protest and revolution due to the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and many more black people at the hands of police. During this episode, we will be discussing the history of the Stonewall Riots, as well as the history of oppression that led to said riots. As such, I wanted to put a content warning for police brutality and violence, sexual assault by police, homophobic and transphobic legislation, riot squads, and arrests. Additionally, we are two white hosts, and as such, many of the messages that we relay regarding these subjects are from a white lens, aimed at correcting fellow white people regarding our stances on revolution. If any of this sounds like something you do not want to be engaging with right now, we absolutely understand. We also encourage our listeners to donate what they are able, whether it be finances, time, or effort, to the Black community, as well as any organizations fighting for the Black community. And now, the episode. Monday, we're super gay. Tuesday is also gay. Wednesday is still pretty gay. And Thursday, I have a night class. Friday, we continue to be gay. Saturday is the gayest day. Sunday, yeah, it's still gay. But we also record a podcast. Hello and welcome to My Gay Agenda, an investigative podcast where we interview the queer community and plan our world domination. My name is Jay. My name is CJ, and we are your co-conspirators in trying to figure out whatever it is cishet people think it is that we're doing. Oh, but CJ, what's on the bi schedule for this very special episode? So yeah, usually we uh, interview queer people, mm-hmm. um, but today we decided to uh, sort of take a page from our live shows And we're going to do a little uh, Queer Moments in History segment, Uh, but it's not so little because we're talking about the Stonewall Riots. Big, big queer moments in history. (laughs) (laughs) One of of the most important queer moments of U.S. history. Uh, (laughs) So yeah, uh, we've been, we've been gone for like, I'd say a month Mm -hmm. and I like, Thank you all for waiting it out. Uh, We know that you have all been incredibly patient with us uh, during quarantine and all of that. Um, But this past month, we wanted to sort of uh, take a breather from our format of white queer people talking about queer issues and sort of uh, give the space to black voices and Mm -hmm. protesting. Yeah, but we figured... Let's let's hop in for a second and talk about the Stonewall riots because I don't know about you, Jay, but I personally saw some discourse where uh, some fellow white gay people were inclined to say that the protests happening recently are nothing like the Stonewall riots. Those were different. Uh, in did they elaborate in what way? They seem to think that the current protests were more violent. Or less organized. I, uh, which could not possibly be any further from the truth do, if they were actively trying. Do they know that the full name is the Stonewall Riots? I did try to explain this to someone <laughs> at least one time, but not just one time. This kept happening. Oh, so God. I went ahead and did a little more research on the Stonewall Riots. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to talk today about uh, 
U.S. history uh, relating to queer issues before the riots, Mm -hmm. uh, what led to the riots, the riots themselves, um, and what happened in the aftermath of the riots. What happened after all of the protesting and rioting? And why does it still extend into today? So, um, and I just wanted to give a shout out. I'm reaching for a book right now. Um, there's a book called The Stonewall Riots Coming Out in the Streets that I used a lot in my research. It's by Gail E. Pittman, so I just wanted to give a shout out. If you're looking for, like, a pretty 101, um, explanation about the Stonewall Riots and their content, uh, context, go check that book out. There's a lot of other books, too. So this episode is going to be, like, the inevitable heightening of our roles in the podcast usually where cj is going to be (laughs) providing very useful and wonderful information and i'm just going to be here commenting (laughs) and reacting (laughs) i know my exactly (laughs) i don't exactly agree with that assessment but enough about us it's time to talk about the stonewall riots so let's get into it i want to talk about before the riots So, in the late 1800s, the Greenwich Village, where the Stonewall Inn is still located to this day, has been a center of LGBTQ community since uh, the late 1800s. And in fact, two other establishments, the Black Rabbit and the Slide, were the first places in New York City where gay people could socialize. Oh. So, there's a history in the village itself. Um... Throughout the first half of the 1900s, being openly gay was criminalized and therefore really dangerous. Mm -hmm. Uh, The rise of homosexual subculture resulted in the creation of uh, police morals and vice squads. Uh, These were... Yeah. Yeah. We're gonna gonna be making a lot of noises about the police. (laughs) Yes. Because fuck them. So the uh, morals and vice squads were responsible for ridding the cities of immoral behaviors. Uh, These included gambling, public intoxication, uh, sex work, or, you guessed it, homosexuality. Mm. February 21st of 1903 is the first documented police raid of a gay establishment Um, The U.S. police raided the basement of the Ariston Hotel, arresting 14 men and detaining 60 more. Then, some of the names of these and addresses of these men were printed in morning newspapers. No! So, and this was really common practice, and we see this a lot in um, uh, police raids of queer establishments, where they would not only detain and arrest queer people, but would also essentially dox them. Did did you say 1903? Yep, 1903. I I mean, I I knew, I I don't know, you never think about it that far back when people talk about, like, Vice Squad, because people mostly talk about it being right before Stonewall. Right, I didn't realize that specific unit uh department mm-hmm. or whatever went back organized that far yeah yeah or that they, people they were sure getting did. doxxed mm-hmm. and oh. sometimes the uh, moral and vice squads uh used entrapment to catch unsuspecting gay men mm. uh for instance at the baker street club in san francisco in 1918 uh the moral squad sent an undercover cop to work as a cook in the club's kitchen Then on February 16th, police raided the building and spent 10 days locking patrons in rooms, interrogating them, and forcing them to sign confessions. 31 men were arrested during that raid. Jeez. 
And then this will be the last one that I talk about in the context of the pre-McCarthy era. Uh, the 1929 Turkish baths, uh, eight detectives went undercover in the bath. Like, the, for anybody who doesn't know, bathhouses are... It's, they're still excellent to this day, but, like, mm-hmm. they were really common places for uh, queer people, particularly gay men, to have relations with each oh. other, meet up, yeah. hook up, stuff like that. So, um, eight detectives went undercover in the baths, then rounded up all the patrons in the front rooms and beat them. One Swedish visitor had two ribs broken. I don't know why I thought... My reactions would involve me, like, being able to throw in some goofs here and there, because yeah. <laughs> as soon as you started talking, I was like, oh, no. Yeah, I, oh. I, like, I don't want this whole episode to be a downer, because, like, this turned, like, this whole event turned into, like, a major victory for us. But it's really important to remember that in moments of revolution, revolution does not happen in a bubble or in a yes. vacuum. They, like, for every, like, I don't know, fucking looting a target or something like that... There is hundreds of years of history that precede it. Mm-hmm. So think about that. Next time you think and next time you say something is too violent, usually it's not violent enough. Um which speaking of, let's get into the nineteen fifties. Oh, so boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. buckle up. So uh things get wicked worse. Um, after World War II, uh, a bunch of U.S. citizens uh, wanted nothing more to than to restore the pre-war social order and hold off the forces of change. They, like, so much was uprooted in society during World War II mm-hmm. that everyone just wanted to return to the way things were. And when I say everybody, I mean white, straight, cis people. That's why the 50s is so, like cookie cutter nuclear family everything yes. is great and wholesome and pastel yes. and milkshakes yes. with two straws yeah they don't they don't want anything else to change they don't want any revolutions they just want everything to be okay again after a huge worldwide deadly tragedy never minding the fact that things weren't okay for everybody in the first place no they just wanted it to be okay for them so um during this time uh during a moment where everybody did not want any any more political unrest everyone was really really super suspicious of communists and this includes uh senator joseph mccarthy who you may recognize uh he started conducting hearings to investigate possible communists in Mm -hmm. the army government and similar branches um and then that just really escalated everybody's fear of communists. And that fear spread out to, like, pretty much any other kind of, like, political disorder. Like, anarchists. And, according to the U.S. State Department, gays and lesbians. Because they were, according to the U.S. State Department, particularly vulnerable to blackmail. Cool. <laughs> in 1950, a Senate investigation chaired by Clyde R. Huey, H-O-E-Y, um, noted in a report, It is generally believed that those who engage in overt acts of perversion lack the emotional stability of normal persons. He also said of all the government's intelligence agencies are in complete agreement that sex perverts in government constitute security risks. <laughs> I want a shirt that says sex pervert on it, first of all. <laughs> God. 
That's one of those things where it's like, hey, you're not allowed to call me that. But that said, I am going to call me that just like so quick. <laughs> yeah, no, in the same way, it's like, hey, I can talk about how, how I'm not emotionally stable, but don't say that about all of us. <laughs> but I don't want the U.S. State Department to say it. No. Um. So as a result of all of this, uh, I, I guess, homophobia spread by the United States government between 1947 and 1950, uh, 1,700 federal job applications were denied, 4,380 people were discharged from the military, and 420 were fired from their government jobs, all for being suspected homosexuals. Uh, cool. Additionally, through the 50s and leading into the 60s, the FBI and the police kept lists of known queer people, all their favorite establishments, and their friends. The post office even tracked addresses where, quote, homosexual materials were being mailed to. And that all sucks, but I do want to know what these materials were. Yeah, I was gonna say, because it's like, there was no way that anyone was having, like illicit magazines sent to them, right? So what is a homosexual material? What constitutes that? A particularly light blue fabric? Like a oh. copy of The Wizard of Oz sent to an adult's home? Like I don't I don't know. I don't know that gosh. Um but <laughs> so uh, all of these actions trickled down to state and local governments, who would then shut down bars catering to queer people and arrested their patrons, as well as, again, listing their names and addresses in local papers. Mm. Though, I do want to note at this point, because it seems like all the newspapers are very bad right now, uh, there was a uh, black-run newspaper called the Chicago Defender that covered stories of black queer Chicago residents as early as 1951. And would later cover the gay liberation movement positively in the 1970s. Well, yeah. A feat that there were not a lot of newspapers <laughs> would do. So thank you to the Chicago Defender. Hell yeah. Um, so if you are the type of person who just wishes that protests and revolutions could just be a bit more peaceful, have I got an organate? organization <laughs> for you? Have I got an organization? Organization. I'll tell you why I got flustered is because I am already nervous about pronouncing this wrong, but I did look up the pronunciation. Um, it is the Metasheen Society, uh, which was founded in 1950 in the living room of Harry Hay with his friends Rudy Gernreich, Cluck, Cluck? What am I doing? <laughs> Chuck Rowland. Oh, I Bob, was hoping there was just a chicken in this group. Maybe. <laughs> I, what is a queer organization without a chicken in there? Without it, without a without a, a goofy animal mascot. Yeah. <laughs> something something joke about cock. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, Bob Hall and Dale Jennings uh, all created the Mattachin Society together. It was the first homophile organization in the U.S., which, by the way, I do want to stress that homophile, uh, meaning same love, was a word that was used for homosexuals in the past. We don't really use that phrase anymore, but, like, we're going to see a lot of instances where there's going to be outdated terminology mm -hmm. that was okay to use then and not really okay anymore. So that's one of them. Um, so the Mattachine Society's goal was to show the world the truth about gay people and how we're not really all that bad, to celebrate the existence of gay people, hmm. which all sounds really good. 
But you're already saying a hmm, because there's a catch. Oh no. Um, <laughs> in the organization's attempts to unaffiliate itself with communism and show everybody that we're just normal people, mm-hmm. uh, the group started steering in some really weird kind of conservative directions. Um, members were expected expected to use fake names in meetings and to dress and act conservatively, including uh, men having short hair, uh, wearing jackets, ties, restraining their behavior. Because after all, if we just looked and acted properly and normal, wouldn't mainstream society just accept us? So it's, so it's basically just that whole thing of like, Oh, I'm fine with gay people, but, like, why does it have to be their whole personality? Which is always said by people of just, like, I'm fine with gay people. I just don't want to know in any way that they're gay. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. Um, So, the fact that the organization was steering in this direction meant that by 1953, every one of this organization's founding members had resigned. Mm. So, in just three years since its formation, the founding members went... Hmm, this so, isn't working, so and they crushing. quit. There was another society that was specifically for lesbians, the Daughters of Bilitis, or the D.O.B., the Dob. Um, <laughs> they formed soon after the Mattachine Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, they started off meeting in their living rooms to dance with each other as an alternative to going to uh, queer establishments, oh. which just imagine going to someone's living room for a nice little dance. I, w- I want that. See, and I know it means, like, I don't know, homosexual fast dancing. Um, <laughs> but, like, as soon as you said that, I just pictured a bunch of people slow dancing in a living room. A bunch of lesbians yes. slow dancing in a living room. And I'm like, oh. It's, yeah. It's, it's sweet. Yeah. I I want that to be one of the myriad of options that lesbians are able to have in order to dance with each other. Yes. That said, it sounds pretty cute. Um but then, at, like, it just it started as, like, a social club, but then grew and developed similar goals as the Mattachine Society, which unfortunately meant that, in many ways, they kept the Mattachines aimed to assimilate to mainstream society. Mm. Which, if these or- we'll, we'll find out later that these organizations will have continued past this time, but a lot of earlier struggles were in between them trying to be normal enough for society and trying to like um assimilate so just bear that in mind in 1959 at cooper's donuts two police officers entered the shop and demanded to see patrons ids um back uh during that time period the law in los angeles was that you could be arrested if your gender presentation didn't match your id and as a result, Great. a lot of police raids included demanding to see patrons' IDs so that they could be arrested. At a donut shop. At a, yes. Well, it was a pretty popular place for sort of like, I guess, people of the night to meet since like they had late hours. Okay, so, okay. But what makes this police raid different than the ones we've seen before was that people were arrested But no one went to jail that night. Ooh. Why is that? Why is that? Because bystanders protested. They threw coffee cups, spoons, and whatever was in arm's reach at the police 
until they drove away with absolutely none of the people that they had arrested. Oh, God bless. <laughs> they won by throwing donuts at the police? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's amazing. So, so I just want to highlight the difference there was that people fought back mm-hmm. physically. They physically fought back and no one got arrested. No one's name was in the paper that night mm. or the next morning. We're going to see some more of that in the 1960s. So let's get into the 19... 19- <laughs> the 60s, a time known for political unrest. <laughs> yes. Uh, and the gay liberation movement, um, it's worth noting, did take a lot of notes, to say the least, mm-hmm. from black organizations and, like, civil rights movements. Yeah. Um, so you'll see a lot of similarities between those because we essentially saw what... Uh, the black community was doing and went, oh, that seems like it'd be a good idea. Mm. Take that as you will. So the two societies that I mentioned earlier, the Mattachine Society and the DOB, uh, shifted their strategy away from trying to conform to the mainstream in the 60s because the 60s. it didn't work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and also the 60s. So one of the inciting incidents of this change for the Mattachine Society specifically to reprioritize was following a raid on September 14th of 1961. Uh, police were raided a club called the Tay Bush Inn, and more than 200 people were in attendance that night. However, oh. the police did not arrest all of them. The police left any, quote, respectable-looking people go, as well as any patrons with political Ugh. connections. Then they arrested everybody else, resulting in a total of 103 people taken to jail, and their names, addresses, and places of employment published in the San Francisco Examiner. Jeez. Now, all of this sucks enough. Yeah. And really shows that the police have always been around to uh, coddle the rich and those in power. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have the political cor- connections, you will never see consequences for your crimes. No. So all of that sucks enough. But for additional context, San Francisco city ordinances did allow gay people to assemble in public places at the time. That was legal. But... They don't care about laws. The mayor, George Christopher, defied those ordinances in order to drive gay people out of San Francisco. That didn't so work. So the government's not following the laws. The police aren't following the laws. What the fuck, said the Mattachine Society. Mm-hmm. So then uh, the San Francisco local chapter of the Mattachine uh, Society quickly became active in fighting to restore gay people's rights to assemble. Hell yeah. Because they noticed that playing nice isn't going to work with a system <laughs> that actively breaks its own laws. Yeah, yeah. Time to change tactics. Yeah. Um, there were, as you could imagine, a lot of police raids and subsequent protests and riots that predate Stonewall. On average, at the time, uh, bars could be expected uh, to have a new police raid once a month on average. Whew. That's every bar expecting a once a month police raid. Oh, was was this the time of the um oh, I can't remember what the rule was called. It was um it might have been a specifically New York rule about the type of clothing you were wearing. Um uh yeah. Where it's like you have to have at least t- two pieces of clothing that reflect your assigned gender. Yep. 
I'm about to get into that. Oh, sorry. Good call. <laughs> no, no. Yes, it, it, you you provided a much better segue than I had planned <laughs> to that. So, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, I just wanted to take a brief moment to talk about what police action often looked like in this context. Mm. So, here was what one could expect from a police raid if they frequent queer bars a lot. So... Specific to New York, because Stonewall Inn, Mm -hmm. um, in the 1960s, entrapment was all the rage with the police. Undercover cops would approach a man in a bar or a public park or something like that, and if the conversation, either the conversation turned to the possibility that they might leave together, or if the cop bought the man a drink, the man was arrested for solicitation. Ugh. Wow. So the cop could literally entrap somebody by buying them a drink. Was that if they accepted the drink? Or is it just like, bartender hands them a drink and then suddenly they're under arrest? Well, the 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 standard for solicitation was so low. There was another instant, I don't have it written down here, mm-hmm. but like, worth mentioning in this context, there was another instance where a uh, undercover cop was uh, at a bathhouse and like was nude in the bathhouse and experienced an injury and was like ow 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 and a guy at the bathhouse turned to him and asked are you okay and he was arrested for solicitation (gasps) for asking if somebody was okay because they clearly had an injury oh my god so that is how like that is how low the bar was for solicitation a man could do anything and get arrested for apparently being gay. So, during a typical raid of a bar, the lights of the bar were turned on, and customers were lined up Mm -hmm. with their ID cards checked. Those who did not have any ID, or those dressed in full drag, were automatically arrested. Others were allowed to leave. Women were required to wear three pieces of feminine clothing, and would be arrested if found not wearing them. Mm. Sometimes women would be undressed to prove that they were not wearing masculine underwear. And anyone in feminine clothing was taken into a bathroom by a female police officer to be undressed, and anyone discovered to be a, quote, man dressed as a woman was arrested. Yeah, I've heard of that procedure. Yep, yep. So that's what one could expect in the usual police raid. And that's how it was supposed to go down with the Stonewall riots, but we'll find out later <laughs> that it didn't. No, no, I've heard that. Um, I know that a lot of the gay bars, in particular, were mafia owned, um, which somebody tried to like bring up at some point in a discussion with me, and I'm just like, eh, so. Uh, but like yeah. the those those bars, um, some of them in particular, the mafia, I think, paid off the police. I heard, and then yes. it would be like, a, oh, are you getting into that? Um, I wasn't going to get into it yet in my order, but that is something that okay. I'll be chatting about. Okay, then I can... We'll, we'll touch base then about the Mafia. Okay. And whether or not they're gay allies. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we do on this show. Yes. <laughs> God, if we were like, oh, let's play a game. How, <laughs> how gay is the Mafia? <laughs> ugh, ooh. <laughs> No, and we'll find out why later. So, <laughs> I'm just saying it's good fellas. I don't that's nothing. 
Christ, Christ, Christ. So, I know nobody really trusts Wikipedia, or they do now, but in my research, Wikipedia lists 24 different protests and riots against systemic homophobia that could occurred between 1959 and May of 1969. Nice. So, 24 protests and riots before the Stonewall riots. Mm-hmm. And that's just what was recorded well enough to be listed on Wikipedia specifically, as many police records from the time were destroyed. And, and like, I could talk about, like, all the dead. They all pretty much looked the same. Police raided, mm-hmm. people yelled, so on and so forth. Well, yeah, and it's like, it's not gonna be one protest or one riot and then everything changes. We just always talk yes. about the final straw, so to speak, where the government finally is like, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so there were a lot of those, but I wanted to talk about one that's pretty famous, mm-hmm. which is the, uh, sip-in. Um, are you aware of sip-ins? Is it like a sit-in? Sort of, yeah. Okay. It is sort of like a sit-in. It, it's very familiar to sit-ins. Um, so, in the 1960s, New York's State Liquor Authority prohibited bars from serving drinks to people who were known to be, suspected to be, or, quote, looked like they were gay. So as a result, bars routinely refused service to gay people and people who looked gay. Mm. So, uh, Dick Leitch, L-E-I-T-S-C-H. Sorry, there are many last names that I don't know about. Mm. And uh, Craig Rodwell, the then president and vice president of New York's Mattachine Society, organized a sip-in with two other friends of theirs. So what this would look like was they would go to a bar, mm-hmm. state that they were gay, and order a drink. Once refused, they could then make a formal complaint to the state liquor authority and fight the regulation. Oh. But they had to be refused service first. And admittedly, the day of the sip-in, it actually took them a couple of tries in order to be refused service. They went to places that were closed. They went to places where, like... Uh, the like there was one instance where they told the server who was probably like I don't know I'm, I'm imagining like an 18 year old kid <laughs> and they're like we are gay serve us drinks so then the server called over their manager and the manager was like just give them the drinks <laughs> <laughs> so admittedly it did take a couple of tries for them to find a location that would refuse service mm-hmm. but on the fourth try at Julius's bar, um, the bartender, once hearing they were gay, put his hand over their drinks. And that resulted in a really famous picture that was taken and then published in the Village Voice, uh, I want to say like a couple of weeks later, about the sip-in and like the whole issue. So you're thinking to yourself, see, if they protest peacefully, um, then straight people will respect them and their their voice will be heard. Mm. No, of course not. Come on. Before the Village Voice was able to publish its article, a reporter from the New York Times wrote his own article about the sit-in and opened it with the headline, Three Deviants Invite Exclusion by Bars. Cool. So that was the story that got to be heard before the actual story from the actual people. Mm-hmm. Almost like there's a system in place that condemns anyone who speaks up, Invite no matter how they exclusion. do it. Exclusion invites exclusion. Ugh. Um. So, 
all of those events, the numerous laws against homosexuality enforced by police, legally or not, the attempts to protest peacefully that didn't prove fruitful enough to create the necessary change we needed, the organizations whose entire ideologies had to shift away from conformity because that didn't work, all of these led to the Stonewall riots. Mm-hmm. But first, let's talk about the Stonewall Inn super quick. So. Okay. Uh, the Stonewall Inn was originally built in the 1840s, but uh, not as a bar, not as an inn, but as a set of two uh, livery stables for storing delivery horses uh, for the exclusive Saxon Company store. So it was originally a horsey sta- a horsey home. Where a horsey horses, home. Where horses with jobs lived. Um, but then cars became a thing, and the, <laughs> the, horse, the horses with jobs were not required anymore, and thus the horsey home was not required to be a horsey home anymore. So it was converted to Bonnie's Stone Wall in uh, 1930, a tea room that was secretly a speakeasy, because oh. we're in the Prohibition times. But then... Prohibition stopped being a thing, so they had they didn't need secret boozy homes anymore. Um, so uh, after Prohibition, Bonnie's Stonewall uh, was able to become a more legitimate business, a cocktail bar and a restaurant. They hosted weddings, parties, and banquets. But let's fast forward to 30 years later, the 1960s, and here's where we get into the mafia. So the mafia... <laughs> Finally. <laughs> the mafia had this really cool business structure where they would purchase cheap properties, turn mm-hmm. them into gay bars, and finagle around liquor laws by operating as private bottle clubs with required membership. So oh. this would scoot around all the liquor laws that prohibited serving gay people because it's not a bar. It's a private bottle club. Mm-hmm. So as a result of this, the mafia gained a lot of control over the gay scene in New York City because these were the places that you were least likely to get police raided at. Mm. And wouldn't you know it, Bonnie Stonewall had just had a fire in 1966, which all but destroyed the property and therefore made it incredibly cheap. So Tony Loria, a.k.a. Fat Tony, bought it did a really cheap renovation, and reopened it as a gay bar a year later under the name The Stonewall Inn. And he's who the Tony Awards are named after. (laughs) To this day. (laughs) The fucking Justin Timberlake of the Tony Awards was like, but don't call it the Fat Tony Awards. Just the Tony Awards. It's cleaner. (laughs) I wish, I wish it was the Fat Tony Awards. Oh, I would give anyway. anything. Um, not not because I approve of Fat Tony, but because that's an incredibly good name for an award. Yes. He, he wasn't great, but he branded himself well. Um, mm, so, mm. so uh, for anybody who's like, ah, cool, Mafia, the, the best gay allies. Um, well, no. Um, first of all, all of these places, including the Stonewall Inn, were pieces of shit. The bars were essentially a front for illegal activities like extortion, gambling, drug dealing. Mafia stuff. They straight up took advantage of the fact that they had a market with queer people and would sell overpriced watered-down drinks. Super cool. And that that was the least of it. Um, so Matthew Ioniello... Italian, uh, aka Maddie the Horse, uh, who was the leader of the Genovese crime family, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so he was in charge of running the operations for many mafia-controlled bars, including the Stonewall Inn. And he was the one who was in charge of paying the police a bunch of money to look the other way, as you mm-hmm. mentioned. Mm-hmm. So you're wondering to yourself, how did the Stonewall Inn make any money if the owners also have to pay bribes? Doesn't that sort of cancel out if they're paying off the police for bribes all the time? So it's super easy, actually. So what you do is you have one of your crime family crew members steal gay patrons' wallets while they're there, show up to their home disguised as the police moral squad, and threaten to arrest the patrons unless they paid money. No, mafia. So, you know, just straight-up extortion of an oppressed community. Oh, Mafia, I was rooting for you. I wasn't, but that's because I, that's because I knew this story. Also, the Mafia did many crimes. And also, the Mafia did crime all the time. Yeah, but that, that, that's a real bummer crime. So yeah, they, pretty, they literally just like made all their money through illegal activities and extortion of gay people. Mm. Who they were also overcharging for watered-down drinks. But yeah. all of this is so that they don't get police raided anymore, right? Wrong. The Stonewall Inn was still regularly raided by police, even though they were getting paid off. Uh, the police at the time, and I mean, they do this all the time now. This is nothing new. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted to pad their arrest numbers because yeah. high arrest records look good to the public. And it makes gives the appearance that the city was is becoming more safe. Have to um, convince us that they are necessary, even though yes. they're not. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's literally just to like make their numbers look good and make mm-hmm. their job look legitimate. And according to uh, then Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine, quote, gay people were easy arrests. They never gave you any trouble. So, huh. What a wacky suggestion. It's almost like... Not giving the police any trouble makes you a really easy target for them to arrest you for no reason. And it's almost like the inverse is true. That if you mm-hmm. give them a hard time and yell at them all the time, then maybe, maybe you'll be fine. But maybe not, because the police are always bad. Mm. Anyway, Seymour Pine was about to eat his words incredibly fast. Mm-hmm. Because... If that name sounds familiar to you, then you may know your Stonewall in history already. He was the deputy sergeant who ultimately led the failed raid on the Stonewall Inn, which resulted in the Stonewall oh. riots, in which all the gay people there gave police lots and lots of trouble. <laughs> so yeah, he was kind of asking for it. He was literally asking for it. So let's talk about the Stonewall riots themselves. Y'all yeah. have been waiting long enough. But buckle up. Everybody acts surprised. There's a lot of conflicting accounts of what exactly went down at the riots. Are you telling me someone wasn't, like, journaling and taking (laughs) photographs during the riot? I know, right? And we're seeing this a lot today, right? Where um, it's, it's hard to keep a linear an accurate track of exactly what's happening. There's conflicting records. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, especially details like what and who exactly started the riots. Um, mm-hmm. 
things like that, how they exactly played out, um, these are all things that can get really confused in public record. So I tried to compile as many facts as I'm able to with the resources that I have available. There's other accounts besides the one that I'm relaying. Mm -hmm. This is just what I was able to assemble. And at the exact moments during all of this where you're thinking, but what about Marsha P. Johnson? I will get to Marsha P. Johnson. Don't even worry about it. Oh, thank God. Everyone, we're good. I love Marsha P. Johnson and I'm gonna get to her. She deserves her own section. <laughs> so, June 28th, 1969. Police at the 6th Precinct received a tip about mafia activity taking place at several locations, including the Stonewall Inn. The aforementioned Deputy Inspector Seymour Pine led what was supposed to be a run-of-the-mill police raid. Typically, during these police raids, one of the undercover officers inside of the bar in question would give some kind of a signal indicating that it was time to raid the bar. But according to Pine, the signal never came. So he's sitting outside with his partner, Detective Charles Smythe, mm -hmm. looking for a signal, and according to him, a signal never comes. They decide to just start the raid anyway. They figured... <laughs> <laughs> they assumed that they would have grounds as the bar was likely serving underage patrons anyway. So they gambled and we're gonna see how that turned out. So. What good training. What good following orders. Yeah. Good job. Good job following procedures for the safety of everybody. Crushing <sighs> it as always. So. At 1.20 a.m., Pine and Smythe went through the double doors of the inn, which, by the way, I do want to highlight that the inn had double doors like a cowboy movie. Um, Wonderful. <laughs> uh, so they went through the double doors of the inn and yelled, Police! We're taking the place! Now, the employees of the bar had no idea there was going to be a raid. Sometimes they were tipped off that there was mm -hmm. going to be a raid. This was not one of those times, so the employees had no idea that this was going to happen. And many patrons of the bar had never experienced a raid before. So if you've never experienced a raid before, being in a bar and then all of a sudden the lights all go on at 1.20 a.m. And two police officers start yelling about taking the place. There was immediate confusion. Um, there were t 205 patrons in the bar that night. And... If you look at a map of the Stonewall Inn at the time, it was an incredibly small establishment. So mm -hmm. people are confused. They're trying to run away. They're trying to leave out the exits, but they got locked in. And then the police started lining up men, as usual, to uh, get identification from them. But the men in line refused to present identification to the police. Mm. So then the police decided that everyone in the bar would be taken into custody. Cool. Now, this next part is according to Pine's account, and I do want to go ahead and stress particularly here, because we're seeing a lot of this today. Police accounts of what happens during a riot are often not the truth. They will what? lie to make themselves look better. They will lie to avoid looking like they did their jobs poorly. They will lie to uh, mm -hmm. punish protesters, punish oppressed people, all of that. I am simply relaying... What Pine says happened, which I believe conflicts with the information I have just given. <laughs> okay. According to Pine, word spread outside of the bar that there would be a raid. So a crowd of people gathered outside, trapping the four police officers within the bar. 
People were throwing Molotov cocktails into the bar, which were being exterminated by police. One female officer escaped through a vent in the rear of the building to radio the 6th precinct, which took its time to get there, Pine suspected, because it was revenge for him not having told the precinct that he was doing a raid in the first place. (laughs) So Pine says, no, no, they locked us in. And unprovoked started throwing Molotovs. And also... One of us climbed through the vents like it's fucking Mission Impossible. Right. So, take that with a... That's wild. That's a banana story. (laughs) Because I I cannot imagine that most, if not all, of what he said was true. That is a banana story. The most that I could give him is that the 6th Precinct probably did take their sweet time getting there. Because we see that a lot with police. Um, so, while backup meandered its way over to the inn, uh, patrons were waiting 15 minutes in line during a police lineup. Uh, those who weren't arrested were released through the front door, but they didn't leave. Instead, they formed a crowd right outside the bar, and within minutes, between 100 to 150 people were gathered outside of the bar, By the time that the first patrol wagon arrived, the crowd had grown to at least ten times the number of people who were being arrested. Hell yeah. Most of the crowd was gay people who would then perform exaggerated salutes to the officers, to the amusement of the crowds, sing and chant. There was good humor in the air, mixed with increasing hostility. Mm. Here are just a few of the instances that really started to escalate this. One police officer shoved a transvestite, which again, we don't super use these that word nowadays, but that is how they identified at the time. So an officer so- shoved a transvestite and she struck him back with her purse while the crowd booed. Police arrested and dragged a lesbian woman, later called the Stonewall Woman, which there's all types of differing accounts on the identity of the Stonewall Woman. Mm. Um, so they arrested and dragged her to the paddy wagon, and then she escaped. And then they captured and dragged her again. She escaped again. This kept going for ten minutes. Oh my god. <laughs> they catch her, they drag her, she runs. They catch her, they drag her, she runs. Until a cop hit her over the head with a nightstick. Her head was bleeding, but she still fought back. Mm. Finally, she looked right at the crowd and screamed, Why don't you guys do something? She was shoved into the paddy wagon and the crowd exploded. The person who is suspected the most to be the Stonewall woman um, is Stormé Delaveri, D-E-L-A-V-E-R-I-E. Sorry for my continuous pattern of not knowing how to pronounce names. I've heard uh, heard of her. Yeah, so she's like a pretty popular um, activist within that time period, and also a biracial person. Mm. So, yeah, it it may have been her, it may not have been her, but I did want to just go ahead and mention that it was quite possibly her. (laughs) The police also knocked down people trying to restrain them, and this further upset the crowds, who then tried to overturn the police wagon, resulting in the wagon and two cop cars retreating. 
I was going to just vaguely say what was thrown at the police, but I do want to go back and provide some context um, for one of the items. So um, during this first night, there were some murmurs in the crowd, like, why is this inn being raided? What's going on? Why are cops here? And then it was mentioned that they were there for... uh, the, the, they were like, oh, well, the inn didn't pay off the cops this week or something like that. And then somebody just yells, well, let's pay them off. And Ooh. they started throwing coins at cops. <laughs> <laughs> Which I just think is very good. Um, they also threw beer cans, bottles, uh, and then... As a result of that, the police continued lashing out at the crowds, Mm -hmm. who, by the way, the crowds outnumbered police by 500 to 600 people. So good luck. Um, And as well as throwing stuff at the police, uh, things were thrown at the Stonewall Inn, like garbage cans, garbage, bottles, rocks, Mm -hmm. and bricks. The police then escalated the situation even further. That's what they did. Then they had already escalated it. By calling in a riot squad, the Tactical Patrol Force. Uh, So the TPF officers, just to give some background, were primarily white, on average 24 years old, and at least 6 foot tall. Um, They were specifically uh, recruited and called in for anti-war protests, civil rights demonstrations, and political sit-ins. They were dressed in full riot gear with helmets, body shields, and nightsticks. The nightsticks were used uh, in many different ways, including a tactic they like to employ called braining, which would uh, be using a nightstick to strike a person's head with full force, with the goal to temporarily stun the victim or knock them unconscious. So... Again, that sounds very unfortunately similar to what we're uh, seeing today with the current protests, Mm -hmm. um, where the police escalate things using military tactics and riot gear. Uh, So, with the TPF there as backup, police once again tried to arrest anyone they could and get them into paddy wagons. Uh, Seymour Pine and other witnesses attest that transvestites were the hardest to arrest as they fought back, refuting refusing to get into the wagon. The TPF formed a phalanx, which is like a a formation using shields, to Mm -hmm. try to force the protesters away by marching down the street. The crowd in protest began forming kick lines, a la the Rockettes, and would do different chants to uh, the ta-da-da-boom-dee-ay tune that were just very gay and very good. Bless. So literally just like not using any violence against them against them just mocking them. So then they were met with nightsticks and braining because of course. <sighs> By 4 p.m. the streets had been mostly cleared, though it was clear that the riots were not over. That was day 1 of the Stonewall riots. Day 2 During the initial riots, uh, Craig Rodwell alerted the New York Times, the New York Post, and the Daily News of the riots, and by the next day, all three papers had articles, with the Daily News' coverage right on the front page. So this really spread the word in a very fast way about what was going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was graffiti on the walls of the Stonewall Inn, which said phrases like, Drag power, they invaded our rights, support gay power, and legalize gay bars. And one bit of graffiti by the Stonewall Inn regarding the status of the bar, we are open. (laughs) (laughs) 
Excellent. You'd love to see it. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, yeah, no, come on in. <laughs> Nothing you could do could be worse than what we were before. Come on in. Um, so word spread really fast about the riots uh, throughout Greenwich Village to the point where the second night of the riots, the same people who returned from the previous nights were joined by curious bystanders, tourists, and police provocateurs. The latter is not great because, again, like we're seeing today, police provocateurs are specifically there to pretend to be protesters um, and cause violence so mm -hmm. that police feel justified in fighting back with violence. Glad to see they're still using the same tactics. So thousands of people were present on the second night. So many that Christopher Street, which the Stonewall Inn was on, was packed and the crowd spilled into adjoining blocks. Protesters surrounded cars and buses, demanding that the people in them vocally support the protests or admit that they were gay. Mm. Marsha P. Johnson, which don't worry, I'm going to get into more specifically very soon. Don't even worry. But I thought this was important to note on the second night allegedly climbed a lamppost and dropped a heavy bag onto the hood of a police car, shattering the windshield. Yes. <laughs> what was in that bag? I don't know. Purse full of bricks. Purse full of bricks. <laughs> yes. Um, fires were started in garbage cans all around the neighborhoods. Mm. Um, more than 100 cops were present from several different precincts, but by 2 a.m., the TPF were called in again. Uh, police tried to capture protesters, but then other crowd members would recapture the arrestee. Mm. Uh, there was street battling, like the first night, until 4 a.m., and thus concludes the second night of the Stonewall riots. So I know we've all been hungry to hear about Marsha P. Johnson. Let's yes. talk about Marsha P. Johnson. So, Marsha P. Johnson was a gay liberation activist and self-identified drag queen. She was black. She was a transgender woman of color. Mm -hmm. She moved to New York City immediately after graduating high school and chose the name Marsha P. Johnson for herself. The P, in regards to questions about her gender, stood for pay it no mind. <laughs> She was one of the first people to go to the Stonewall Inn as a patron after they began allowing women and drag queens inside. Before that, it was exclusively for gay men. Mm. Bearing in mind that drag queens was another term that was used both for, like, performance artists who utilize drag and also people who chose that as a gender identity. We mm -hmm. don't see that as much today, but, like, yeah, you're gonna hear the word- Yeah, there are trans women doing drag, but- Yes, yes. Um, but we don't use it so much nowadays as a gender identity. That yes. was just the usage of the time, so just to note that. Mm -hmm. um, so, as for the Stonewall Riots, there are many different accounts involving Marsha P. Johnson's involvement with them. Fellow Stonewall veterans and gay activists such as Morty Manford and Marty Robinson had reported that on the first night, Marsha P. Johnson threw a shot glass at a mirror in the torched bar, screaming, I got my civil rights. Mm. And this was the shot heard around the world, so to speak. Others claim that she was at the Stonewall Inn to celebrate her birthday at the time, which doesn't super line up because her birthday was August 24th. <laughs> Look, I know that I celebrate my birthday for a whole month. If yes. Marsha P. Johnson wants to celebrate her birthday for three months, she's allowed. <laughs> that is her fucking right. Do not even get it twisted. 
Um, by Marsha P. Johnson's own accounts, she claimed that she arrived after the riots had begun, waking up her friend Sylvia Rivera on the way. Mm. So, what's the truth? My first inclination, and the one I will carry to this day, is that if someone says that they were <laughs> at a place in time, then I'm gonna take their account for it first. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm also just going to go ahead and note, as a side note, that Marsha P. Johnson had a lot of different run-ins in the, with the law, specifically regarding the fact that she was also a sex worker. Mm. So, it does stand to reason, for me personally, that if there was a huge publicized riot, that maybe a black transgender sex worker might be more inclined to say, no, I was not there that night. No, I did not do this. Yeah, yeah, because there's, there's a difference between being like, oh yeah, I came later after it started, to I started it. <laughs> yes, exa- I threw a shot glass at a mirror. Please go ahead and publish my name and address in a newspaper. Mm. Like you've mm-hmm. been doing. So she might she might be saying she wasn't there to cover, but either way, if she says she wasn't there, she wasn't there. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not a fucking me doing my, I'm not gonna... <laughs> It's audio, so you can't see me doing the hand over the <laughs> next symbol. But... <laughs> I'm not gonna fucking narc on Marsha P. Johnson. Are you joking? But all of that aside, whatever she did or did not do on that particular night is just one drop in the water of what she did for the gay liberation movement and transgender mm-hmm. people throughout her lifetime, especially following the riots. So first, immediately after the riots, she joined the Gay Liberation Front and participated in the first Christopher Street Liberation Pride Rally, um, aka the first Pride ever, on the first anniversary of the Stonewall Rebellion in June 1970. Two months later, she staged a sit-in protest at Weinstein Hall at New York University after administrators canceled a dance when they found out that it was sponsored by gay organizations. Marsha and fellow drag queen activist Sylvia Rivera co-founded the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, a radical political collective that provided housing and supporting to homeless queer youth and sex workers in Lower Manhattan. In 1973, a gay and lesbian committee that was running the Gay Pride Parade in uh, banned Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, claiming that drag queens were, quote, giving them a bad name. So what did they do? Johnson and Rivera showed up anyway and marched in front of the parade. <laughs> as a particular <laughs> fuck you to anyone that says that drag queens, that transgender women, that people of color, that black transgender women are giving Pride a bad name. Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera wants to tell you specifically to go fuck mm. yourself. And she did so much more than that in her life. But in the context of the Stonewall Riots, it is essential for us to remember that it was transgender women of color, black people, specifically a black transgender woman, at the forefront of the gay rights revolution and its aftermath. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Let's talk about the aftermath of the riots. We all want to know what happened on the other side. So, remember our good friends, the Mattachine Society? They had an uh, annual picket in front of Independence Hall in Philadelphia that started before the Stonewall Riots, but this year, in 1969, nice. um, 
took place, since it always happened on July 4th, this happened just a couple of days after the Stonewall riots in a completely different city. And you may recall that their practices were more conservative. Mm -hmm. So during this particular annual picket, two women held hands during the picketing, and uh, one of the leaders from the New York chapter, uh, Frank Kamini, broke them apart, screaming, none of that, none of that. No. His peer, Craig Rodwell, then convinced ten other couples at the picket to hold hands, which then resulted in the picket earning more press than any other of the annual pickets had ever gotten. Mm. So this showed for a fact that the gay rights revolution was not going to happen while people tried to stay palatable to those they were protesting. It was clearly time for new tactics. Can we bring this back as, like, instead of celebrating 4th of July and being like, yay, fireworks, barbecue, yay, America, uh, we should make 4th of July be about um, protesting government buildings and holding hands. <laughs> I love that. That's, that's the love new 4th that. of July. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> Seconded. So, um, with the formation of new tech and the need for new tactics, mm -hmm. uh, this resulted in the formation of some new organizations. Uh, these included the Gay Liberation Front, which you may recall was the organization that Marsha P. Johnson joined right, right after. Yes. Um, and this was the very first gay organization to use the word gay in their name. Mm. So, like, the Mattachine Society, the DOB, all used specifically coded language to hide themselves. The GLF made themselves known off the bat. Sadly, it didn't last very long, the organization, because trying to organize a group around a huge issue like dismantling oppression smack in the middle of a tumultuous time is difficult. Mm. And you're going to have, like, a whole bunch of different people with different ideas about how it should be done. And all of their ideals are not going to line that up. That is true. So, um, several people who were actually members of the GLF but were frustrated with the chaos of those meetings then went off to form the Gay Activists Alliance, which was formed December 21st of 1969. Their goal was to work with the political system to bring about gay rights. Uh, they declared themselves politically neutral. Uh. However, <laughs> if you re it's odd because if you research their tactics and goals, they're all counterintuitive to the concept of being politically neutral because much of it depended on active political tactics against the system. So whether they were just saying that for marketing, or if they just didn't know it, how activism <laughs> I mean, it'd be smart to use as marketing, because I feel like you could... Um, there's a lot of people who are, like, super conservative without really understanding what that even means. It's just what they've been yeah. taught. So if you say, like, oh, yeah, I'm conservative, too, and they're like, cool, and I'm like, but, like, people are humans, right? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. It, it, it could just be a very sneaky way yeah. to, to shove people further left, which I support. Um, <laughs> and the aftermath of the Stonewall riots, as I mentioned, also saw the formation of Pride, mm -hmm. um, which was created by Craig Rodwell, the guy who was telling everybody to go hold hands. Um, 
So he created and organized Christopher Street Liberation Day, which was held on June 28, 1970, uh, the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Riots. There were simultaneous marches in Los Angeles and Chicago, making these three the very first gay pride marches in U.S. history. So, so, so Craig, Craig made pride? Craig made the Christopher Street Liberation Day. Which became pride. Yeah. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, essentially. All right. Yeah. I knew I liked that hand-holding guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He seemed to know what he was doing, for sure. Um, so I wanted at this time to mark specific ins- because I also see a lot where people were like, oh, well, I'm a member of this community that is protesting, and I think that it's bad how they're protesting and how they're doing it. This happened a couple of times with the Stonewall Riots. With a couple of people. I'm going to just mention two specific people. Okay. So there's Frank Kamini, who you may remember was the guy who was saying, stop that. Guy. Yes. Anti-hand-holding guy. The anti-Craig, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so his activism before, during, and slightly after the Stonewall Riots was dedicated to trying to convince straight people that gay people were normal, too. His marches usually just had, like, I don't know, ten people with them. No press was alerted. They weren't trying to, like, rock the boat in any particular way. Um, And this was a huge contrast to what he observed after the riots. So, to quote him, By the time of Stonewall, we had 50 to 60 gay groups in the country. A year later, there was at least 1,500. By two years later, to the extent that a count could be made, it was 2,500. So, he began to see the benefits of being loud (laughs) yeah and then uh randy wicker who had marched in the first gay picketing in front of the white house in 1965 said of the stonewall riots immediately after and he was like one of the more vocal um denouncers of it Mm -hmm. he said um it was screaming queens forming chorus lines and kicking went against everything that I wanted people to think about homosexuals that we were a bunch of drag queens in the village acting disorderly and tacky and cheap but after a few years he came to describe his embarrassment as quote one of the greatest mistakes of his life mm. mm-hmm. which I'm not going to try to force anybody to feel a way about particular protests um especially ones that don't apply to me specifically but consider you know (laughs) time makes wise men of us all yeah although gosh if we allow it to gosh if we don't still have uh like cis white gays in the the community who are like i'm not like other gays i'm not yeah flamboyant i'm 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 normal (laughs) yep And, I mean, use whatever tactics you want specifically to survive in the area you're in. Not, this isn't about that. It's specifically about trying to enforce that upon other people and upon an oppressed community. Oh, yeah, and I I don't mean it in being, in terms of, yeah, no, hiding, like, or protecting yourself. I I those people. That's fine. Do that if you need to. We got you. Those those judgy boys. (laughs) Yes, the judgy boys. (laughs) Let's talk about one final person who tried to have a redemption arc. Oh no, okay. Is it Seymour Pine? It's Seymour Pine, baby. <laughs> so, Seymour Pine, the cop who led the Stonewall Police Raid, retired in 1976 and died in 2010 at the age of 91. 
Before his death, in 2004, he was asked in an interview to apologize to the gay community for leading the raid, which he did. But... But... In 2009, he claimed, quote, When we took the action that we took that night, we were on the side of right. I don't think not liking gay people had anything to do with it. (laughs) In 2004, Pine acknowledged that the officers, quote, clearly were prejudiced, but had no idea about what gay people were about, which I would argue is not an excuse for prejudice. No, no, no. And it's just how prejudice works. (laughs) Uh, And I would also argue that he retired several years after the Stonewall riots, mm -hmm. and during his time in the force, he did not speak up for or against it in any particular way. So it's literally absolutely useless to be making these statements after he had been retired from a position of power for decades. In fact, the New York Police Department only formally apologized for the Stonewall riots in 2019. (gasps) Last year. Cool, cool, cool. I think they should have to apologize every year. (laughs) Or just, I don't know, stop existing. (laughs) And this apology did not include any of the other riots that the New York police had done. No, no, of course not. It didn't include the myriad amount of times where officers were undressing queer people to check their genitals. It didn't include the illegal practices that they did. It just talked about the famous riot. Yeah, 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 the big commercial one, like... Right. Yeah, the one that, that now has corporate sponsors... Right. So, to the New York Police Department, I don't fucking believe you. And that's what I gotta say about that. Yeah. So, that is the history of the Stonewall Riots. It is a history that is chock-block full of decades and decades and decades of prejudice beforehand, and violence beforehand, and one that... These riots did include violence. Mm -hmm. Violence Mm -hmm. was a part of it. It was led by and included black people, transgender people, black transgender people. Yeah, like, let's not forget our history. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. We did not hold the hands of the government and ask them to pretty please acknowledge us as people, and they went, okay, because you'll note... I didn't say anything about any laws being passed after the Stonewall no, riots. They because we're still seeing this today. Uh, during these protests, a bar was like a gay bar experienced a police raid. Yep. Yeah. And was, uh, a few were shot at too. It's terrifying. Um, so much of history has been sanitized, and this is still so recent. <laughs> yep. Ah. Uh. So, I just wanted to summarize a couple of things that I think we all, and I say we, white people need to remember right Mm -hmm. now. Fellow white people need to remember right now. Riots are good. Riots work. Riots are a part of revolution. They are the reason that we as a queer community have any of the rights that we have. Mm -hmm. There is no pride without riots. There is no pride without violence. There is no pride that should include police. Yeah. Yeah. And riots riots would not have to happen in the first place without the systemic oppression 
enforced by police that forces oppressed communities to fight back. And addition, I, I have like a couple of things that I was like, actually, fuck this. <laughs> so feel free to include your own if if you are so inclined, Jay. But I just also want to say that the police's primary function is to uphold laws, not to protect citizens. Mm-hmm. In fact, in 1981, Warren versus District of Columbia found that police do not owe a specific duty to provide police services to citizens based on the public duty doctrine. They are not required to know the law in order to make arrests. They are not required to know the law in order to take any action. Uh, The police were founded in order to capture enslaved people and return them to slave owners. Uh, They were created in order to fight back against labor unions and fight back against political parties' opponents. Mm -hmm. They have always existed in order to oppress. That is their history. Like, we have to acknowledge our own history, we have to acknowledge the history of the police force. Yeah. It doesn't work. No, no. (laughs) In fact, no, you know what? It works exactly how it was created. It is working to this day for the exact reason it was created. And that's why it needs to be abolished. And people have tried to tack on other definitions, but they're not... (laughs) No. (laughs) A system like this literally cannot see reform. No, get rid of them. Yeah. Get rid of them. I do like just also want to say riots never exist inside of a bubble. Yeah. They do not exist inside of a vacuum. And if rioting and protests are the first that you're hearing about an issue, that's not because this is the first that this issue is happening. It's because that there were a myriad of other tactics that were tried and failed. No, our our, so, our history wants to acknowledge the last thing that got something done. They want to talk about um one instance of like the boy- bus boycotts instead of yep. the year of it. Like they want to talk about one march instead of many marches. They want to talk about one riot instead of a history of riots. Uh yep. and they yep. don't want to talk about how destruction of property uh is a great way for reform. Look at I don't know, the Boston Tea Party, the Bastille, mm-hmm. Berlin Wall got destroyed. We're not going to complain about that. <laughs> yep. Yep, 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 yep. So yeah, if you are one of the white gays, or white people, but like, gays, we should know our fucking history. Come on. Um, <sighs> choosing to condemn a moment of violence, protests due to revolution is to ignore centuries of violence committed against people for no other reason besides not conforming to the standards created by white supremacy. It's pick and choosing what you personally are sensitive about, Mm. what feels comfortable for you. Mm -hmm. And I I will say, when you said when Seymour Pine died, it was 2010. I actually had a moment of just shock to think that somebody who was like in the thick of of uh, Stonewall, on the wrong side, obviously. Um, yes. Lived until then, and to be fair, I just listened to a, a an interview the other day with um, Tree, a man who still bartends at the Stonewall and did back then. And it's Bless. it's so I have a cognitive dissonance of people being alive now through then, and it's because we've lost we lost um, a great deal of a generation of queer folk in between 
that event and now. And I think that makes it a little easier for some of the history to get lost. We don't have as many queer elders to talk about what happened. Um, so that's the onus is on us. We have to preserve our own history. So read the books, seek out queer elders and listen to them. Uh, do the research. <laughs> Don't watch that 2015 movie. Don't watch that one. <laughs> I mean, no one did, so I'm sure I don't have to be the one to say don't watch yeah. that 2015 movie, but Christ, do not watch the 2015 movie where a small gay white boy threw the no, first no, brick. No, 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 yeah, don't do that. Um, there are documentaries about Marsha P. Johnson. There is footage of Sylvia Rivera um, giving speeches for Star. Let's not be complicit in like the erasure of our history. We have to. We have mm -hmm. to seek it out and preserve it actively. Yeah, yeah, and we have to get our head out of and our asses when it comes to other people. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know how to explain to people more that protests aren't here to make us comfortable. Like, if you feel uncomfortable during a protest, congratulations, you're being protested. Mm. Change is not comfortable, and uh, yeah, I mean, like. It's going to seem real weird, I think, to some, some white people who had no idea the extent mm -hmm. of, of the horrors going on. Um, but that's a great wake-up call. Time to learn. Lots of books. Yeah. Lots of movies. Yeah. Lots of documentaries. Lots of people sharing their experiences. Go, go, go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> listen to queer elders. Listen to black people. Listen to black queer elders. <laughs> Angela Davis is still alive yes. and still <laughs> giving speeches. Go listen oh, to her. and talking about, um... Kimberly Crenshaw is still here. Go listen to Kimberly Crenshaw. <laughs> I, I wouldn't necessarily call her an elder, but... Angela Davis talking about abolition and transness and breaking the binary. Uh, go find it. <laughs> Just go find it. Jesus. <laughs> A lot of us are still sitting around at home still anyway, so, like... True. Might as well. Yeah. What else do we have going on? Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, that's been my gay agenda. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks again for your patience uh, for this episode. We're going to try to get back on track while also being very aware of um, where our voices are necessary. Yes. yes. So uh, bear with us. We've still got uh, guests who are busy. <laughs> there's a lot. Yes, there's. <laughs> to say the least. Yes. Um, as well as us. So. We will get to you when we get to you, and I promise whatever we got, it'll be made with love to you. Mwah. Mwah. Stay safe. We love you all. Uh, particularly if you're protesting, be safe. Wear, wear masks to protest. Mm -hmm. I know everybody's doing it, but wear masks to protests, because the police sure fucking aren't. They just do not give a shit about anybody. Whatever. Whatever. Wear a mask. <laughs> <laughs> Get some hand sanitizer. I've been to a lot of uh, protests where they have hand I've heard sanitizer about a lot of that. Yeah, I um. Well, yeah. I'm very passionate about the mask thing. Um, I mean, everyone should be, but especially uh, the reason I haven't been going to any um active protests and going out there is I might might be immunocompromised. It's a whole thing. Um, ah. So, like, yeah, from someone who's, like, real high risk, please wear the mask. Uh, I, I love how many masks and hand sanitizers I've seen um, from pictures and reports uh, of pictures where no one's face is shown. Do not take pictures and post pictures, not take pictures where you can see protesters' faces. Don't do that. No, don't do it. 
there's too many cons there's too many risks too many mm-hmm. uh just watched a whole john oliver thing about facial recognition oh yeah and um it's it's don't don't if do you're it. if you're a, a sickly a sickly snack like me and you're stuck at home but you want to help um there's so much education out there you can take the time to educate yourself educate others spread information sign and share petitions donate if possible there's still lots you can do even if you can't be out there yeah cool we, we want to wrap this yeah, up should i try out the new Thing. Oh yeah, Jay Jay created a, a new little sign off, and I'm excited for it's, it. We're we're, t- we're trying it out. It might change again. Who knows? Anyway, uh, yeah. Um, it, it change changes. If if we've learned anything today, change is good. Yeah, and as a bi person, I'm open to phases. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so thank you for joining us. Until next time, put this in your gay agenda. Change the world. Love yourself. Honor real pride this this month. Pride was a riot. That's right. <laughs> it's Wrath Month. Wrath Month. <laughs> and that's our gay agenda. That's our gay agenda. That's our gay agenda. We just want to exist.